Welcome to the Nutritional Outlook podcast. I'm Jennifer Grebo, Editor-in-Chief of Nutritional Outlook magazine. And I'm Sebastian Kravitz, Editor. We are your podcast hosts. Nutritional Outlook is a multimedia publishing brand and leading information resource for manufacturers of dietary supplements, healthy foods, and natural products. In this episode of the Nutritional Outlook podcast, we are interviewing Scott Dicker, marketing data analyst for market researcher Spins, about which ingredients dietary supplement and nutrition companies should be on the lookout for in 2022. That's right. This podcast episode goes hand in hand with our January, February 2022 issue of the Nutritional Outlook magazine. Every year, the editors of Nutritional Outlook select a handful of ingredients we think will be of high interest to dietary supplement and nutrition companies in the coming year, um, perhaps due to sales developments, um, regulatory changes, or other updates. We interview experts about these ingredients and present these insights in our annual Ingredients to Watch story. As in years past, SPINS has been a key partner in our annual coverage. Once again, SPINS graciously shared market research data from the past year about which functional ingredients were top sellers in the mainstream and natural retail sales channels. That data informed us as editors as we determined which ingredients that we then predicted would be trending up and down in the next year. This year, we're honing in on eight ingredient areas to watch. Number one, hemp CBD. Number two, sleep health ingredients. Number three, ashwagandha. Number four, brain health ingredients. Number five, plant protein. Number six, NAC or N-cetyl-L-cysteine. Collagen is number seven. And finally, number eight is immune health ingredients. Join us as we interview Scott and get insights on what's driving developments around these eight ingredient categories. Let's take a quick break from our sponsor and we'll be right back with Scott. What if you had limitless access to customer insights, accelerated timelines, and set fees? At True Serum Network, we're fueled by connections in virtually every area of healthcare as part of MJH Life Sciences. The result? audience-fed creative, and more powerful content in less time. True Serum Network, releasing what's real. Find out more at truesterumntwk.com. Hello, podcasters. Today, we'll be interviewing Scott Dicker, marketing data analyst for market researcher Spins. We are asking Scott for Spins' opinions on some of the ingredients we editors at Nutritional Outlook included on our 2022 list of ingredients to watch for dietary supplements and nutritional products. Thank you so much for joining us today, Scott. Thank you, Sebastian. It's great to be here. Scott, let's turn our attention first to um, CBD um, or hemp cannabidiol. over the last few years, we've seen immense growth in the CBD category. Uh, the COVID pandemic seems to have kind of put a break on that, um, but the ingredient is still selling rather well, particularly in the natural channel. Um, what might these trends tell us about how consumers buy and use CBD supplements? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I think prior the year prior to the pandemic, I think everything was all about CBD. You couldn't really you, you couldn't really escape it. It it boomed onto the market, unlike many ingredients that I think we've ever seen. Right, so <clears throat> there's a few things that play here. 
One is, you know, it, what an impressive introduction, right, to, to kind of those mainstream stores and the natural channel. And I don't think that that was ever going to be fully sustainable. So I think that that kind of dip down was to be expected. I don't think it's all doom and gloom, uh, kind of that, that coming back down. I do think the pandemic initially, you know, it reprioritized things. A lot of people weren't going to the stores, especially those smaller stores uh, where CBD would normally be found. So they were kind of consolidating their trips uh, to, to more uh, mainstream big box stores where they weren't likely to have as much CBD. It wasn't top of mind kind of at that initial part of the pandemic. Uh, the budget that a lot of people had for kind of specialty supplements and like this was more focused towards immune health supplements at the beginning and other things. Uh, but that being said, I think CBD has certainly carved out a, a major kind of slice of a lot of the industry. We are seeing a growth in people looking for things like relaxation products, mood support, stress relief products. And all of those things are where CBD can really find, find an audience. I do think, and I, I go back to it, that initial surge where we were seeing CBD added to everything, uh, you know, I, there were some big supplement companies who pretty much doubled their entire line by doing the every product plus CBD, right? And so I don't think that that growth is ever going to be, be sustainable. I do feel like we've come to a nice baseline of the people who have found benefits from CBD, and I do think that they can start to incrementally grow from there. Um, some areas that we are seeing growth, you mentioned the natural channel and grocery in particular, um, so grocery products added as a functional functional ingredient to things like beverages, as well as uh, some growth in like neighborhood pet channel, so for pet supplements as well. So I th those are some kind of strong areas that we're seeing for CBD currently. Terrific. So you, it's pretty much safe to say that the future of CBD is relatively secure, having established itself as a valuable commodity in the preceding years. Yeah, so as far as, as being a product that is going to have a customer base, absolutely, you know, it won't get into any of the kind of the legality and things that are going on with labeling and, and other things. But as far as having a customer base, I think that they've definitely found, they've found an audience for it. And, and it's going to be, you know, a staple of a lot of people's supplement section. Perfect. Um, Scott, the next ingredient that we're watching in 2022 are sleep health ingredients, kind of collectively. Um, you know, we saw so much demand for sleep supplements and sleep support products that it just skyrocketed during the pandemic. And, you know, we're in our coverage this year, we're going to hone in on a few specific standouts in the category. You know, one that can't be, you know, is top of mind is, first of all, melatonin. So first off, can any sleep ingredient compete with melatonin at this point? And the mainstream channel, you know, based on data that Spins has generously shared with us, melatonin has such a huge lead over other ingredients, you know, and even in the natural channel, it's, it's there at the top, you know, so what do you think? Like, will other sleep ingredients begin to compete more seriously against melatonin or is melatonin pretty much guaranteed to always be the leader? So, I think there's a lot to unpack there. So first off, you're you're totally correct. Melatonin is is seeing you know strong growth um, in most channels. We're seeing double digit growth 
and you know the regional independent channel uh convenience and mulo and things like that and and so i mean one of the reasons that it's been so far and above other ingredients is, is that it's pretty proven to work right it's been studied it's kind of that gold standard of sleep products so when you have a product that's been so researched and been around for a while it's hard to say that something's going to really overtake it you know i, I think of it the same way you know, I look a lot at sports nutrition ingredients. Everyone's been looking for for years and years, what's the next creatine, right? Um, but creatine works, caffeine in, in products works. So those uh, those tend to continue to be the growth. So if I, I do not foresee any time in the near future, another ingredient overtaking melatonin, uh, it's widespread acceptance as a product. Uh, again, the efficacy of it uh, has been pretty pretty well researched. So in that regards, uh, melatonin is, is going to kind of stand as the the standard bearer for sleep supplements for a while. And it's not always. I don't know. I'm interested to your opinion if you've tried these products, but you know, it's usually when people have a product that they work, they're less less likely to be looking for new ingredients. Um, I do think, and I think we'll get into this a little more. But there are a lot of ingredients for relaxation um, and sleep that are coming to market that are going to be interesting. Um, but you know, you can't always be looking for the new thing if if what you have is is working. What What are your thoughts, Jen? Well, I can definitely say I'm a melatonin user, and it's funny because these days I think I take my melatonin at 5 p.m. like <laughs> so that I can be asleep by like 9 p.m. But um, I've been using it for years, and it works, and you know, yeah, that's been good enough for me. So I agree with what you're saying there. Yeah, and just to add a kind of a personal flavor on this as well, I actually, you know, I have not consistently ever used melatonin. I have used, you know, other kind of relaxation products at night, including CBD, which I think um, was something that we were interested in talking about. And so I do think there's a market for a lot of these other ingredients to to improve their market share. You know, I also used to like those magnesium drinks kind of as a calm, calm down nightcap. Um, and so one of the things that we've also been seeing a lot just in general is this rise when people are looking at like everyone's individual pursuit of wellness is a little different. So as people are looking at it, they're looking at all these kind of adjacent uh, these health focuses and stress and sleep go hand in hand together. Um, so I think the real opportunity for brands and ingredient suppliers as they're looking to, not that they need to take market share from melatonin, but as they're looking to introduce products and ingredients is to really maybe maybe look at other kind of uh, root causes. So is it a stress relief product that if that's the reason that people are having trouble going to sleep, maybe you're steering people towards those stress relief products with those other ingredients as well. Absolutely. And another question, Scott, you know, we saw so many new category users enter the supplement space during the pandemic, during the past two years. So do you think a lot of that attention that melatonin got is just because people, mainstream consumers, maybe first time users to the category, that's the ingredient they know. So if they're gonna reach for a product to help with sleep, you know, during the stress of the last two years, they're gonna reach for melatonin. Is that something you think also was a driver? You, you got it. So that's definitely a driver, the familiarity with it. And we did see, you know, there were so many people who got introduced to supplements during the pandemic, you know, 
caring for yourself, especially your immune system was really top of mind for everyone. And once you start, once consumers start kind of into the supplement area, then they, they start to look to expand again, when we talk about like their, their overall wellness being so important. Um, so it's, it's your immune system. And then, you know, well, what's causing you to be run down? Maybe I'm not sleeping well. So then you're looking for sleep support products. And so they've probably, they're more likely to have heard of melatonin than any other sleep ingredient, right? It's also probably the thing that comes up most in their online searches when they look for supplements that help with sleep. It's probably the thing that's in the retailer's sleep support section the most. So I think all those things play a role, um, but mostly it's the new customers and their first introduction is often going to be the most popular ingredient. Got it. And you touched on CBD just a little bit ago. Um, so what about CBD in the sleep category? You know, CBD supplement sales did decline last year, but, you know, also we saw sales growing, you know, somewhat healthily in the natural sleep category. Um, so would you agree with that? And if so, why do you think that CBD is growing its presence in the sleep market? I think just going back to what I was saying earlier, as brands and consumers make this connection between sleep support and relaxation and stress relief, I think you're gonna to start to see more and more crossover, both in the marketing claims, but also in the ingredients that are being used. And so, you know, if CBD uh, had, a, had a, a good run, of course, and continues to have a, a big slice of that kind of stress relief, um, health focus and use case, uh, we are seeing them like every other ingredient and brand, you know, looking for other ways to, to utilize their ingredient. And I think sleep support is a, a natural transition uh, that overlaps. And also to that regard, um, I'm curious to see what you guys would think, but I imagine that we're going to see uh, CBD included in many more sleep formulas that might also include melatonin. So I think kind of that that overlapping approach is going to be something that we're going to see a lot of brands doing in the future. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that based on, you know, companies and seeing what they're bringing to market, I think that they are looking at ingredients that are going to catch the consumer's attention. And CBD is certainly one of them. You combine that with melatonin. And I think, you know, that that's definitely an interest area. And I do also want to know when we're looking at other ingredients, uh, that really fit what we've just been talking about. Something like theanine, um, which is also you know used to calm and relax, and we've seen that more and more also in energy products. As you know, when it's paired with caffeine, it's it's you know supposed to take kind of that jittery edge off of it. And so when we see ingredients that are are gaining market share really wherever you know you you look for other areas to use them. And so kind of that core use of theanine as, as relaxation, I think that can uh, bleed into the sleep department as well. So that's just another example of kind of these crossovers as consumers prioritize their wellness. Uh, and it's gonna look a little different for everyone. Uh, and you know, different retailers are gonna have you know, some different sets of what their co consumers are looking for for wellness. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree as well. I mean, it's gonna go both ways too, right? I mean. Uh... CBD manufacturers are going to want to add um, ingredients to their products in which they can make claims of, which they cannot of CBD. So if they want a sleep product, they're going to have to add melatonin. 
at the same time, uh, a lot of these mainstream brands also want to get in on the CBD game. So it's kind of interesting to see that kind of dynamic. Yeah, I think I think you that's a, an excellent point uh, that, you know, in order to make the label claim, uh, they need to pair with some of these other ingredients. I think that that's an excellent point um, as you look for both searching online um, as well as in store. So the next ingredient that we're going to talk about, and it was on our list last year as well, um, is ashwagandha. Um, you know, you mentioned mood support earlier. Ashwagandha continues to see growth in that area. Um, but given that it's a you know a rather versatile ingredient in terms of health benefits, um, are there any other categories that the ingredient is seeing growth in and that manufacturers should capitalize on? Uh, so yeah, we're seeing ashwagandha. This is a huge trending ingredient. And we've seen it both uh, in online sales as well as in store. It's really growing, you know, double high double digits in a lot of cases in most channels over both the past 52 weeks as well as the past quarter. And you're really right; like it's a it's an adaptogen, right? So it's not just going to be for for one uh, health focus. And so some other areas that you're going to see that is one in things like energy support, and it's also um, you know, look for it to play a role in more functional food and beverages. And one of the key themes that, you know, we've been seeing going back to, you know, certainly uh, what we saw at Expo and other shows in the past is this kind of growth in these non-energy functional beverages. And so as we look at, uh, and this is kind of coming full circle, we're seeing a lot of relaxation and sleep functional beverages, ashwagandha and adaptogens are, are other ingredients you know, that we're going to see, see huge growth. And, and so we've actually been tracking with our product intelligence, you know, not just ashwagandha, but all the adaptogens together. And so products that are using adaptogens are, you know, seeing a lot of growth, um, both in, in Mulo and convenience channel, as well as, as well as things like the regional independent channel. So this is definitely ingredients of interest. And uh, as I mentioned, this is something that we've seen online as well. And a lot of times when it starts to happen online, um, we see those trends flow through uh, the, the store levels as well. So would you say that um, consumers are looking um, at individual adaptogenic ingredients or is a term adaptogen kind of gaining ground? Like are, are consumers typing in adaptogens into Google or are they looking for ashwagandha or are they looking for amla? I think right now, and this is, I don't have the search engine results or anything like that, but I think that right now ashwagandha is the ingredient that's kind of leading the charge on it. Um, similar to, to when we were talking about CBD and when we look at all the other different cannabinoids that, that start to pop up, um, you kind of have that first one coming to, to initially. So as we look at ashwagandha, I do think, you know, other adaptions, be it, you know, rhodiola or or Shizandra, and I think I said that right, so I'm hoping there. Um, those are going to be start playing uh, a role um, in, in these kind of balancing uh, health focuses as well. I, are there certain ingredients that you guys have been keeping your eye on as well outside of ashwagandha? I guess um, kind of adaptogenic uh, mushrooms um, are also, uh, you know, seem to be gaining popularity, whether people know them to be adaptogens. I don't know if it's just the mushroom trend or is it adaptogen trend it's hard for me to tell exactly yeah that's that's a great point because mushrooms uh you know the functionality of mushrooms 
know, we're seeing mushroom coffee, mushroom drinks, uh, everything, you know, mushrooms are, are really in everything. I think there's even a brand I tried at one of the shows that was a, like a frozen dessert uh, bar and it had lion's mane in it. Um, so, so that's a, that's certainly a trend. Um, but to your earlier point, I don't think people are quite, you know, the mainstream consumers are quite uh, looking for the word adaptogen yet. But I think that that's going to change with some further education. Perfect. Um, next on our list of ingredients to watch, Scott, are brain health ingredients, just in general. You know, we saw some some brain health ingredients perform pretty strongly last year. You know, so first, Scott, looking at retail channels, um, what factors do you think grow of the growth in mainstream in the mainstream cognitive health category, especially? You know, why do you and you know was that growth higher than in the natural channel? Why so much interest in mainstream? I think so kind of going back to what we were saying before with the trends, you know, so a lot of times they start online, but a lot of times they start in the natural channel. And so when when something's trending high and natural, we know it it's usually just a matter of time before it, it becomes a mainstream trend. That's why, you know, it spins when we look at our, our natural natural enhanced channel. That's really our go to source for new trends just in food and beverage and the industry in general and supplements. Um, so so that was that was to be expected as we saw that growth there but i think uh going back to to kind of this these pre-pandemic trends when when so many people got introduced to supplements again that really opened the door for for a lot of these categories that are immune adjacent so first we saw that wave hit the sleep support the mood support the stress relief and then that next wave is well um you know, for my overall wellness, I want to be functioning properly. So we saw this growth in brain support products, as well as like things like performance nutrition, um, as people look for peak performance. And that's not just, you know, in sport, but also, you know, a lot of people are working from home, you know, they're, they're looking at the computers a lot. So this brain, brain support and focus, there's a lot more distractions at home. I think, you know, we can all agree to that. So the, these kind of brain supports products are growing in popularity as well. Great. And Scott, are there any notable standout ingredients within the cognitive health category that you would draw our listeners attention to? I know in our coverage um, for ingredients to watch, we're going to be focusing on some of the phospholipids, maybe, you know, Bacopa, but what would you say catches your eye based on what you saw in terms of performance? Well, what I've been looking at for, for a while now uh, at, on a personal level and also looking through the data is that lion's mane mushroom. Uh, so that's something that's really caught my eye as it comes to a brain health product. Um, also, when you talk about phospholipids, the phosphatidylserine, I think that's a really interesting one. Uh, Hup A, another one to look at. Um, so I think there's a, a lot out there and, and they're working a lot on these kind of synergistic formulas. So I want, I expect to see, and what we are seeing is a, a lot more of these, these brain health blended products rather than people going for a single ingredient. And we can, we can point that to most health focuses and what Sebastian was saying earlier about like CBD plus melatonin. Uh, we're seeing a lot of these, a lot of these products kind of incorporate multiple ingredients um, when people are looking for that function. And just to, to, to go back again, when people are searching for things, a lot of times they're searching just for brain health products. 
um, and not necessarily a lot of these single ingredients, which are sometimes harder to pronounce, sometimes a little harder to search for. So I, I do think that uh, we're going to be seeing a lot of a lot of these these products kind of grouped together. But it is interesting that they are having that mainstream impact right now. Great. What are what are some of your favorite brain health products, if you take any? I guess omegas, like I, I do take those. Um, Omega, and that's, oh, that's a great point. Sorry to cut you off. But sure. DHA, I think, um, again, sometimes sometimes the the old established things are, are still still really strong. So I think the omega-3 product is, is still going to be a strong one going forward as well. Right. And I think, you know, there was so much conversation in our industry about stress relief, mood support. You know, it was really interesting to see that just basic cognitive function that people were paying attention to that as well. So I think that that was, you know, notable that that just that area of brain health was seeing a lot of interest last year. So do you think it had and sorry, can I ask you a question? Of course. Right. Do you think that that had to do with a lot of the remote work and people moving around that kind of that cognitive and focus uh, really started playing a role? I think so. You know, we started seeing terms used a lot more like brain fog, you know, and when we see marketing talking about, you know, sharp while you're working at home. So I definitely think that that uh, is a, something that got people thinking about it more, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think people, many people were short of stressors the past couple of years. Um, so, so sometimes when you're stressed, you're out of focus. So I think that mental clarity, that mental fog that you talked about, that's playing a big role in, with consumers. Absolutely. Also, Scott, um, you know, SPINS data showed a lot of growth in multivitamins in the brain health category last year. Do you have any idea of why multivitamins are performing so well here? Does it have to do with, you know, some of those things that you talked about, people looking for a combination overall products rather than individual ingredients? Yeah, so multivitamins it has historically been a strong supplement category, of course. And so when people are looking at that to kind of fill the gaps in their in their everyday nutrition, um, that's kind of a that's a logical first product to take to, to your um, your supplement cabinet. And and it goes back to so many new consumers. Um, that's kind of one of the first things. And instead of maybe adding on a second product, a third product and building their basket that way, um, when they see that a multivitamin can also help with brain health uh, and these other functions, and I don't think brain health is alone in that. Um, when, it, when you have a multivitamin that's doing multi, no pun intended, but like multi-purposes, uh, that's going to be attractive to a lot of customers. And so that's an expected change. And that's something I expect to, that will continue to grow. And finally, speaking of continued growth in the brain health category, based on the momentum that we've seen, do you think that bodes well for continued cognitive supplement, cognitive health supplement sales growth, you know, this year and in the near term? I think near term for sure. Uh, I think long term, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out uh, as a lot of these first time customers. I don't think, you know, it, it'll... It'll be interesting to see how many of them are retained as kind of repeat customers, as sometimes these specialty supplements are not things that have a quick like refill rate. Um, you know, as people try, if they try a product, if they're not getting immediate results, are they going to go back 
and try it again? Are they going to try a different brain health supplement or are they going to kind of be turned off to the category altogether? Um, I do think that there's a lot of room for growth. I think there's a lot of, you know, strong products out there. So I do expect it to grow uh, in 22. Uh, when we go beyond that, it's going to be really interesting to see um, what's going on there. Scott, the next thing I want to talk about is uh, plant protein, kind of with a focus on food and beverage. Um, overall, it appears that um, animal-based proteins continue to be favored in terms of sales growth. Um, but is there any indication that plant-based protein sources are gaining ground on animal-based sources? Yeah, in, in a lot of different categories, you know, you see while while animal-based proteins um, when we're talking about functional beverages, usually whey or casein or other milk proteins, uh, those are and continue to be the, the market share leader. Um, but oftentimes the largest growth items are the plant-based proteins. Um, you know, so for example, you know, in, in the natural channel, we're seeing plant-based multi-proteins growing at 5%. Uh, we're seeing in the Mula and plus convenience growing at almost 20%. Um, so, and again, that's kind of that arc of the trend where we see it, it took off, you know, that high growth and natural and then into uh, the mainstream channels as well. So we are seeing larger growth percentages in the, in the plant proteins as well. And, you know, one of the source now and something that plant proteins, uh, you know, had to kind of combat in the beginning is, is now that they have to combine them to make these complete proteins. So we are seeing the top growth uh, plant proteins are these kind of multi when they're using, you know, multiple plant proteins as well. Uh, to say that it would ever overtake kind of animal-based proteins, you know, milk and, and stuff like that, that's, that's hard to say. It's so established that it's easy to formulate with. I think there's uh, some te technolo technology that has to happen for it to kind of uh, be compatible with it there. And then, you know, there's always, you know, something that we've been keeping our eye on is these fermented proteins and these cell-based proteins and when those are going to start to disrupt the market. I don't think that's going to be in 22. Um, I think that's more likely to be something for 23 and 24. Uh, but as those like fermented whey proteins and things like that um, hit the market, those animal-free proteins uh, that look for that to be a disruptor. Um, like I said, I think it'll make headlines this year. I think it'll actually be a disruptor. Uh, the following coming years. Yeah, so you touched on it briefly just now, but um, talking about plant-based alternatives to meat and dairy, you you believe that that will have a significant impact on kind of the growth of the plant-based protein marketplace? Well, the more the more people are introduced to it, uh, you know, the the barrier of entry is so much less now than it was for plant-based products even just a few years ago. So, you know, we were just at the um, plant-based world in New York and we saw a lot of, you know, big innovations in plant-based meats and things like that. And so you're seeing plant-based options in every aisle. Uh, so whether they're, they're kind of uh, plant-based versions of animal analogs, plant-based chicken, plant-based burgers, plant-based uh, seafood, we were even starting to see. Uh, or if they're just using kind of a vegan uh, plant-based alternative to a flavoring. So now you walk in the chip aisle and you see something with a vegan cheese flavor. So that's kind of the, a plant-based alternative as well um, to the animal-based products. 
So the barrier of entry, you know, it, it, it's so low now and you're getting a group of consumers to, there's now, you know, a lot of the households now have people who are millennials as the heads of household. And so as they're kind of making more of those purchasing decisions, you see they grew up, you know, being exposed to a lot of these plant-based proteins. And so it's, it's a lot easier to get them to, to purchase things. That's why that's one of the trends we're actually seeing millennials driving is this trend of plant-based. Um, and you can, you can see that it's going to continue and that makes it easier for these new entrants of plant-based protein products as well. Talked about um, a lot of these multi plant-based protein um, products um, having to be combined to make a complete protein. But do you have any data in terms of like, if there are any kind of like a preferred plant-based sources um, on the market currently, you know, what is, what are the most popular sources would you say? Yeah. So pea, I think is still the most popular. Uh, it's easiest to formulate if we're just looking at singular proteins, uh, hemp going back to that as well and brown rice. And those are kind of the most established. And so as they're the most established, they've had the most opportunities to, to fix the technology around formulating them, flavoring them and things of that nature. Um, so those are, are going to be the, the most popular still, if we're talking about single ingredients. And do, would you say protein claims on labels continue to be a major selling point for food and beverage products, whether they're plant-based or animal-based products, kind of say a kind of like a sports nutrition category, for example, um, how often would you say the source of protein contributes to a, a purchase decision? Uh, very often. So especially, so when you're talking about sports nutrition category, uh, just to clarify, you're mainly talking about protein powders and ready to drinks, right? Um, ready drinks, bars, um, ready stuff like bars, that. exactly. Yeah. So you're definitely going to see, um, protein obviously plays a huge role in that in general. So when they're looking for that, and then as it comes to source, there's a growing number of people who will eat both of them. Uh, you know, the flexitarian market is, is huge. And I think that's where a lot of the growth from the plant-based markets actually coming from. It's not people who are exclusively avoiding animal products, but people who are eating both. You know, I consider myself that as well. I, I eat a lot of plant-based protein products. I also, you know, will have whey protein shakes as well. Um, but source is definitely important. You know, as we look at, you know, people are still following a lot of different diet tribes. Um, so, you know, people, obviously people who are eating a plant-based diet, they're looking for these products that are claiming it. But also people who are looking, who are eating, you know, Whole30 or Paleo or Keto, they're looking for products and this, they're really examining the ingredients and the sources of ingredients on each label. Um, so that is going to play a big role. Uh, but it's also the nutritional parity. So you can't have, I, I, they're looking for that grams, that gram amount as well. And I know we're talking about kind of that performance nutrition category, but I do want to throw out uh, another kind of analogy that I, I found very relevant is that when we're looking at plant-based milk, um, we see items that had eight grams of protein per serving really surging and doing well across most channels. And, you know, that's, that's to hit that nutritional parity with dairy milk. So people, if you remove those barriers of, of where a lot of these products have the, the nutritional advantage, then it, 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 again, it skews those percentage points for plant-based um, to, to gain a, a little bit of that share 
to the consumers who are not exclusively plant-based. And kind of like, what about um, kind of functional foods and beverages more broadly um, outside of say sports nutrition? Like what if I'm just kind of an average consumer, I'm going to the kind of a beverage aisle, I see some beverages that have either a protein claim or maybe a, uh, a cognitive health claim. You know, what do you, do you think people still gravitate more towards the protein claim over other claims? Absolutely. It's definitely still has a health halo around it um, where, you know, it's, it's really the only macronutrient that's never been vilified. So, you know, fats for a while have been vilified and now, you know, it kind of got shifted completely with a lot of the keto crowd and whatnot. Um, but there's still a group of consumers that aren't too fond of, of having a drink that's got, you know, 20 grams of fat in it. Um, sugar and carbs, obviously, there's always a, a trendy diet around vilifying carbs. And so protein is kind of that go-to health halo nutrient. And so that's going to have the widest reach, um, certainly over something like brain health. Such interesting insight, Scott. Scott, the next ingredient on our list is one that isn't as widely known among consumers, um, but that will probably be a hot topic in 2022. And for those who aren't aware, NAC is an ingredient that has been consumed for many years as a dietary supplement, you know, it's purported to offer health benefits, including as an antioxidant. And it's come under the spotlight recently with FDA sending warning letters in July 2020, claiming that NAC is not actually a lawful dietary ingredient because it was investigated as a new drug before it was marketed as a supplement. So we have industry leaders and associations, you know, they filed citizen petitions arguing against FDA's reasoning. You know, they maintain that NAC is a lawful dietary ingredient. Um, Suffice it to say, NAC will be a contentious topic in 2022, which leads me to ask, how high are NAC, NAC sales currently? Are a lot of consumers using NAC as a dietary supplement? What does Ben see? Uh, we are seeing a lot of growth for NAC um, in you know, the, the Mulo Plus Convenience channel, the Natural Hands, and, as well as some in regional as well. The, you know, the dollar volume is, isn't super high in it, but we're definitely seeing a lot of consumers interested in it. And, you know, for the reasons you mentioned, you know, it's used as a strong antioxidant, I think, um, and this is not my expertise here, but I think, you know, there's, there's some uses for it, uh, for some things for the lungs and cough and stuff like that, or at least that's um, what's being purported use out of it. And so it is gonna be interesting to see that this um, play out as well, if if it was a dietary supplement versus a versus a drug, right? Right. And in terms of health condition categories, does Spins have any data in terms of what categories NAC supplements are selling the most in? All right. So for NAC, it is you know oftentimes it's marketed not with a specific um, function; it's as a standalone ingredient. But we we do see it actually a lot. You know, in the hangover remedies, um, as as a ingredient used for that, as well as some um, immune health, uh, immune health as well. So those are those are the two kind of health focuses that we're seeing a lot outside of when it's kind of not advertised as a specific health focus. Great, and we'll keep our definitely be keeping our eye on this ingredient this year. I know that you will as well. Next up, we're watching collagen. 
Collagen's impressive sales performance indicates continued growth in 2022 um, from where we sit. Uh, so Scott, what are consumers most interested in using collagen for? Like what's driving their interest in it? Is it all just about hair, skin and nails or are they becoming more aware of other health benefits of collagen? You know, maybe for joint support, athletic performance, you know, some of those benefits that more collagen suppliers have been studying, investing in research in. What are they, what's drawing consumers to collagen? Yeah, so collagen continues to see a really strong growth in, you know, omni-channel as well. So both in-store and online, uh, in in really every channel. So this one, from you know, I wasn't I wasn't sure it was going to continue to have this as long of a trend as it's had, um, but it, it's here to stay. Uh, the number one uh, reason people are going at it, I think, is still you know the hair, skin, and nails, and kind of that beauty from within um, benefit. And we're seeing that cross over to a lot of functional beverages as well, so more collagen drinks. But I do think you know brands like Vital and Ancient Nutrition really did do a good job of of education on the, you know that people can use it for joints or you know sports recovery as well. And so where I think it just opened up that new audience. I don't think it overtook the it didn't overtake the beauty, uh, hair, skin and nails kind of aspect of it, but it did open up these new segmentations uh, for the for the ingredient, though. And it's been strong growth and, you know, strong growth. I don't expect this trend to to be slowing down um, in 22. Right. And, you know, we see collagen doing well, both in the mainstream, the Mulo and the natural channels. Is it customary for an ingredient to do so well in both? It is when the trend is continuing. So, you know, the is like when it's continuing to do so well in the natural channel, that's that's why I'm comfortable saying that it's going to uh, continue to to have growth in that in that conventional channel as well. Um, because we, we see, you know, if the trend starts running out with those core consumers, then then it might um, bubble into that mainstream trend. So it, it is for example, you know, a lot of plant-based foods, you know, we're, we're seeing do well. And then on the, on the other side, you know, different, different trends with animal-based products where, for example, they're highlighting animal welfare claims or sustainability, that'll do well and then perpetrate into mainstream as well. So should we be on the lookout for some kind of plateau for collagen at some point? At some point, yes. I, I don't predict 22 is the year though. Got it. So finally, Scott, we've arrived to the superstar of the room, uh, immune health ingredients. Uh, we know COVID isn't going anywhere yet. And we know that consumer demand for immune health supplements was off the charts during the past two years. Um, but what about moving forward in 2022? Um, we Should we temper our expectations? You know, For instance, you know, looking at Spins data on ingredient sales last year, on the whole, it appears that the demand for immune health ingredients has declined um, since its initial surge. Um, do you think this coincided with the advent of um, broader COVID-19 vaccination? Or is it, you know, simply a matter of sales being not able to sustain this record high levels um, over time? Yeah, it was never going to be able to sustain that growth. So, you know, when, when 2020 first started and everyone, you know, was really into buying immune health supplements, 
I, so many people got introduced to supplements and they were almost always being introduced through immune health supplements, vitamin C, zinc, vitamin D, elderberry, things of that nature, you know, were very common. And so a lot of the themes that we've been talking about so, so far are really going to, to be included in, in unpacking this question, right? Um, one, new customers, huge boom, unsustainable growth. And then also, you know, it's, if people are buying these huge bottles of vitamin C or elderberry, uh, you know, it, a lot of people, you, you can't expect everyone to be a repeat customer. So things are going to have to come, come back down to earth a little bit. The baseline, I can tell you, is significantly higher than it was pre-pandemic. Um, so they have maintained a lot of that growth. Um, and just for example, when we look at um, the immune supplement subcategory, we see in all channels, a decline when we're looking at 52 weeks, um, but they're all starting to grow, and in some cases, double digits um, when we look at the past 12 weeks year over year. So once we start uh, comparing it to that non-outlier year, because 2020 for immune health supplements was an outlier year, right? Like we can all say that comfortably. And so now that we're kind of lapping 21, we can start to see kind of more modest um, but sustainable growth in them. So, for example, our regional independent grocery channel is doing really well, up twenty percent, up over twenty percent. Uh, Mulo Plus Convenience is, is, you know, up double digits as well. When we're looking at twelve weeks, the past twelve weeks. Um, so, as we start to come closer to lapping, when we're as we start to compare, be comparing to uh, this non-outlier year, we're going to start to see some positive numbers again. So, kind of things are more in terms of supplement sales things are fairly normal um right so you're saying that you don't really foresee any major um spikes or kind of outlier um increases in sales even considering the rise of the different covid variants and all that so that that's a great question and you know it it's hard to make predictions about what's going to happen right with with a new variant or or you know um what I can tell you is that, you know, when cases peak, you know, you can expect to see some uh, surge in immune health supplements. When they go down, you could probably see some decline in sales. Uh, we're not going to see anything close to what we saw that initial 2020, though. Um, but you, you can see, and, and we see that not just with what they're buying, but also where they're buying. You know, as cases go up, we do see a shift more towards online buying. As they go down, we are seeing more people return to store. Um, and in that function, you know, it's similar to, to the whole category. Uh, the online sales, you know, it, it, it shot up. But that growth, it did come back down, but the baseline's higher now. Um, so more people did, did converge when they're looking at where they're shopping as well. I want to turn my attention now to a specific ingredient namely vitamin D. We've seen vitamin D sales rise impressively during the pandemic. While it's difficult to attribute the growth solely to the immune health category, there has been a growing body of research into the nutrient's ability to support immune health, particularly during the pandemic, with vitamin D status being linked to COVID outcomes. Does vitamin D have a future in the immune health category? Do consumers usually think of vitamin D as an immune health ingredient, or is that awareness still growing? Yeah, vitamin D is an ingredient that's been showing strong growth um, and will continue to as well. 
Uh, it's it's got the the benefit of being an immune health product, but not exclusively immune health product, right? Um, so it's able to to capitalize on on a bunch of different trends going on. Um, as you mentioned, there's there's been a lot of research out in vitamin D, um, so that's one of the ingredients that you should continue to to see see doing well. And then you know when we go back to everyone's kind of looking at these adjacent categories right now, um, these ones that have the overlap. You know that that can be marketed and positioned as as both. You know it really benefits those ingredients. So if someone maybe started taking vitamin D for their immune health, and then they became maybe they stopped because of whatever reason they're they're not feeling like it's as important for them right now, or or whatnot. But then they get interested in you know bone health and they see vitamin D there again. And then they go, oh, you know, I was taking this for my immune health as well. You know, I might as well keep it's got all these benefits. So I think vitamin D has has a strong, strong case to be made when people are are picking and choosing which supplements they're they're buying. And the fact that it crosses over into so many different health focuses, uh, it, it's really bodes well for the future. Awesome. Thank you so much, Scott. That is it. We made it to the end of our list. I should say you made it to the end of our list because that was, we grilled you for quite a long time. So thank you so much for being with us today. As always, we appreciate all of Spin's valuable expertise and your insight. I mean, it's just so clear, you know, just how knowledgeable you are about all of these ingredients. It's such a pleasure working with you and your team. So thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much, Jen and Sebastian. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on and really excited to continue working with you guys. Thank you all so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this month's Nutritional Outlook podcast and our annual look at this year's Ingredients to Watch. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines and provide some expert insights from industry leaders. Remember, you can always find us online at nutritionaloutlook.com, on LinkedIn and Facebook, and on Twitter at NutritionalO. The views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the views of Nutritional Outlook, its parent company, or advertisers. For editorial questions, please email Editor-in-Chief Jennifer Grebo at jgrebo at mghlifesciences.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at tbaker at mghlifesciences.com. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.